As parents and teachers, how can we best communicate with children and teenagers to gain a positive relationship? Do we over-reward children in today's schooling system? And what can parents and teachers do when they are struggling to deal with teenage misbehaviour? My guest today is Nadine van der Linden, an experienced clinical psychologist working with adults, adolescents and children at her practice based in Ocean Reef in Perth. Recently, Nadine published her own ebook, Tales from the Parenting Trenches, A Clinical Psychologist versus Motherhood. I caught up with Nadine late last year in Perth. Well, I'm here in the beautiful suburb of Ocean Reef in northwest Perth, and I'm joined by clinical psychologist Nadine van der Linden. Nadine, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Tracy. You write a great blog for your website, Linden Clinical Psychology. So today I wanted to focus on a few key articles relating to parenting, especially communicating with children. In your article, Coaching Kids, My Journey with Positive Psychology, you share an anecdote of how you use the principles of positive psychology to coach your daughter's netball team. Nadine, tell us, what is positive psychology? Positive psychology is the science of thriving, how individuals and communities can thrive. And so there are four principles that are associated with positive psychology. One is rising to life's challenges and making the most of setbacks and adversity. Then there's engaging and relating to others, finding fulfillment in creativity and productivity. And the final principle is looking beyond oneself to help others to find lasting meaning, satisfaction and wisdom. And how can parents and teachers use these techniques to enhance the development of children and teenagers? I think the model helps guide us in terms of how we look at our children's development um, so that we're promoting the idea of setbacks and adversity as normal, it's expected even, and then we can focus on a problem-solving approach so we can look at um, how can we get through this together rather than it's a problem if there's something going on in my child's development. Also, we can look at it to help broaden our understanding of what it means to be a healthy human. So it's about connecting and relating and engaging with others rather than being solely focused on one maths test or performance in a musical instrument or sporting career or something like that. So healthy humans are more than just individual success. Uh, also, it lets us see that um, being creative and productive is really important to human feelings of success and thriving uh, and that we can get a lot out of life by participating. So for example, I find there's a lot of focus on leisure activity and what we do with that, but actually humans do much better if we're creating and producing. And then I think finally, the last principle helps us create and find ways for our children and our school communities to support and help others and that we can find that very rewarding and find a meaning in our life which for some people is quite missing at times so when we connect with other people's struggles and difficulties and help them that that can actually benefit us as well. When it comes to children's behaviour why is it important to ignore what you don't like more often? Well this idea comes from the idea of positive reinforcement and really what we know is that when you draw attention to behaviour you're feeding it. So when you draw attention to a behaviour that you don't like rather than ignore it you're actually feeding that with attention and because children love attention sometimes um, even being reprimanded or punished will be experienced 
in a positive way to some degree because they're looking for that attention. When we ignore it, we're not feeding the behaviour with attention and we're, so we're more likely that it won't happen again. Um, so essentially I'm sort of saying to people, be careful about what you feed and if you ignore what you don't want to see, you're more likely to get less of that and if you notice what you do want to see, you're more likely to get more of that. Why do we as humans often tend to maximise the negative and minimise the positive, the good things? Well, the human mind is really a protective device. So it's trying to keep us safe and it's trying to find solutions to things. So negative things are seen as problems that need to be solved and, and problems that we need to resolve to stay safe. So that means that even though it's helpful in some situations, sometimes the mind finds the negative even when there are lots of positives. For example, as parents, we worry uh, about things that we see in our children's behaviour. We try and get rid of that. We find it difficult sometimes to ride through stuff that's hard because our mind is worrying about the long-term consequences for our children and how that's going to play out for them and even for us. Our minds tend to be drawn to problems both in our own lives and that of our children rather than allowing ourselves to enjoy what is going well and what is working. What can you do to enjoy what is going well, to maximise the positive? What strategies or advice can you give people? Well, I think you need to recognise that natural tendency of your mind. So rather than saying, um, I have to focus on that problem, you could say to yourself, is that my mind focusing on the negative again? Make a list of what is going well, how your child is doing well, even how you are doing well as a parent or in your own personal life, so that you're focusing your mind on um, the positive aspects of your life. There's also techniques such as mindfulness and gratitude practice which help us stay in the present moment and notice what is actually happening now rather than getting into that problem focused future worry about what could go wrong, what is the problem. So those are two techniques that I really recommend that people look into using in their day to day lives to help with their emotional well-being. You said there is so much in life that we participate in and don't win, so developing skills to manage the feelings associated with losing is important, as is learning to value participation for reasons other than direct rewards, such as winning or payment. Nadine, do we over-reward children? I think there can be a tendency to over-reward children with physical items, such as stickers, toys, money. And I would encourage everyone to use verbal praise and body language as much as possible because there is no need to be worried about using too much of that kind of reward. But what we run into problems with is children refusing to do anything without knowing what they're going to get paid to do it for. What will I get for that? And your parents find themselves in negotiations about what's going to happen. I'm not saying that any kind of physical reward is inappropriate and sometimes it's very helpful for motivating behaviour that's stubborn to change, but we don't want to have every daily interaction marred by what can I get out of this. So we're trying to promote in our children that sometimes we do things out of goodwill because we've got a relationship and just because it creates a more harmonious community or home environment. So should everyone get a prize? I don't think everybody should get a prize. One thing I notice as a parent um, that these days when you pay past the parcel everybody has to get a prize in each wrapper rather than it being the surprise of who gets the end prize. And generally I find there's a lot of prizes and um, competitor participation ribbons and things like that given at schools. It doesn't 
I really recognise that the prize is supposed to be about rewarding excellence and they don't really mean very much if, if everyone gets one and as in the game uh, that I was talking about it kind of takes out the spirit of the game if everybody gets a prize every rap it's sort of like a turn taking exercise then. Uh, most children I find are aware that participation ribbons are not really worth very much, they understand the system of who won and who didn't win. Um, and I think we can reward participation in other ways so we can do that with pr praise and belonging and recognition that it's not always easy to participate in something that you're not the best at. How do we make sure that a child's motivation or a teenager's motivation is for intrinsic gain, intrinsic value rather than simply doing it to achieve a prize, some extrinsic reward? I'm not sure that we can make sure that that happens but we can try and encourage that and we can try and demonstrate there are things that we do as adults that are not just for ourselves that we don't get paid for to do and that societies and communities run better when there's um, people who do things because they value trying their hardest, they value doing well and they value doing something that's going to contribute. I think in all of us there's a need for instrumenting reward as well, so not very many of us will go to work without being paid. We might do some volunteer work but we won't do the whole of our job without getting some reward. So it's not necessarily a problem if children need some reward for doing some things in their life, but it's about having a balance so that they also realise that you, they can reward themselves um, with their own sense of self-worth um, by recognising their achievement and that doesn't necessarily have to come with a prize or a gift. When it comes to praise, how do we give genuine praise? So genuine praise is helped if the child feels that you are thinking about how you're giving it to them and that you're actually really noticing them. So constantly just saying well done, well done, good job um, like that can get a bit old for children and they start to really wonder whether you're um, actually noticing them. So try to notice what they're doing and why you like it and actually verbally praise that from time to time. You can of course just give them a high five or say I really liked that. It doesn't always have to be extremely complicated but I guess varying it and not making it a routine thing that doesn't have any meaning. If we over praise and over reward are we at risk of children never losing like you said or never failing and therefore not developing the skills, the resilience needed to face a lack of success for example? I think the course of life means that children are going to face disappointments and they're not going to be able to reach some of their goals so even if we give a lot of verbal praise and we, a lot of encouragement we can't really protect them from those things so for example they may not get into a sporting team at the level that they wanted to, uh, they might miss out on the music program at school, those sort of things can't be avoided sometimes so the praise and the noticing that you give as a parent for just generally being a good person and participating in family routine won't uh, get in the way of that. What can you say to a child when they do experience disappointment? What are some phrases or words that parents and teachers can use to alleviate their disappointment? I think part of it is actually acknowledging the disappointment. So a lot of what we do with children is not validate the feeling and try and encourage the moving on process and, and as you said the alleviation. So sometimes the most important thing is to say yeah it's really disappointing, it's hard when you lose, you wanted to win and you tried your best or something happened which meant that you couldn't win. 
but it doesn't mean that you are bad or that you're not good at this it's just that sometimes things don't work out so something along those lines but definitely instead of you know going along with doesn't matter let's get on with it let's move on what are we doing today let's have an ice cream those sort of things that we often do as parents uh, when we're busy and when we're trying to help our children feel better sometimes it actually works more effectively if you sit with that uncomfortable feeling of I didn't get what I wanted or I didn't win or maybe I let my team down today and and then sometimes you'll find when you do that the child will go yeah mum it is disappointing but it's not the worst thing in the world and, and they'll move on quicker whereas if you try and push them with come on now let's get on with it everybody loses sometimes they might then become more distanced from you or more stuck in their feeling. Nadine, can you use constructive criticism under the positive psychology model? I discourage people from using criticism of any kind wherever possible and that's because generally people defend against criticism so it's experienced as I am bad or I am wrong so rather I would encourage you to talk about what is not working, what we need to see, um, sitting down with your child or if this is a colleague, because this happens in workplace as well, and talking about what can we do about this together, what might fix it. Sometimes your child might actually have some good ideas, sometimes they not, might not be great ideas, and you can also throw in your ideas because it's a team problem. But um, as a whole, constructive criticism doesn't really work, even if you put it in the feedback sandwich of a positive and a negative and a positive. So in terms of trying to get what you want, you're, more, you're better off if you try and look at it as, this is a problem, what can we do about it, rather than personalising it to what the children's doing. When you need to improve skills and knowledge and you need to give feedback mm -hmm. and point out some those errors, how can you best do that? I think showing an example of what we're looking for as opposed to what we're getting um, rather than saying this is not right, this is wrong, what we would say this is what I got from you, uh, this is how we need it to look or I can see you're doing really well with this part of the skill but we now need to add this bit on or have you seen how so and so does that I mean, you have to do that within reason because some children don't like their parents comparing them to other children uh, but if we're talking about a particular skill you could use sort of a role model adult or something a basketball player or an example of schoolwork that someone else has done that that might help with that but really just trying to detach the behavior or the skill problem from the person and see it as you know obviously you need a little bit of help to get to here as a teacher that's so it's so difficult sometimes because you need to point out where they went wrong so they can fix and improve but at the same time you don't want to demotivate them mm -hmm. as well and shatter their confidence so how do you balance that I think it's quite difficult and I'm just thinking of um, when I was in year 12 myself and I got a English literature assignment back and it had 9 out of 20 on it and it was the first time in my life I'd ever failed anything and the words, there was not really any feedback other than something like a poor effort or something like that and I was shattered and I thought oh I'm going to fail year 12 and it's going to be dreadful. So I think when I think of that example what would have been more helpful was to have my teacher say well obviously you know you're past year 11 English literature so what happened with this one? It seems you didn't understand what you were supposed to do or you need to look at this reference book to understand what's expected of you or give me an example of someone else's work that I could look at to get it but it, 
It's trying to make it about skill development rather than you were wrong or you were bad or you were not clever enough to do this, I think. Let's move on to your article, Winning Ways for Talking with Children. You said that in addition to your role as a clinical psychologist, you're also the parent of two young children. And so you're always interested in what works with children from both a professional and personal point of view. In particular, better and more helpful ways to communicate with children, especially around strong feelings and behaviour. So Nadine, what do parents and teachers need to remember when they're communicating with children? I think the core thing to remember is that often with children we're seeing behaviour rather than words. So children don't have the cognitive skills or the language skills to communicate in the same way as us. So we need to be really aware of that. There's a real uh, tendency for adults to talk to children as if they're just mini versions of themselves. But a lot of your words are going to be lost if you talk at length and you don't keep it short and simple. Um, also, acknowledging children's feelings and point of view. This doesn't mean that you have to agree with those feelings and point of view, but you do need to understand that they are present for the child and be willing to hear it out and, and listen to it. And generally you'll get a much better result with children if you're able to do that. In the article, you included a fact sheet from the University of Maine. From this fact sheet and from your own experience, how should we best communicate with children? Again, I think it's about acknowledging the feelings and talking about that. I think remembering that it's not just what we say, it's about our body language, uh, the tone of voice that we use. I think that we need to always avoid name calling and put downs. This sounds really obvious, but there's a lot of you're being silly, don't be stupid, things like that that go on in families sometimes, which actually are experienced as a put down by the child. And I suppose um, mostly parents are doing not too bad generally when um, there's not big feelings in the room, but when there's big feelings, that's when things get a bit tricky. So just being aware that if things are getting difficult or your child's not behaving in the way that you would expect that often it's because they're struggling with how they feel so we need to look at what is going on rather than trying to talk over or give orders. Well speaking of feelings there's a quote on the fact sheet that says adults usually do not have any difficulty communicating with children when it simply involves giving directions or explaining things but they sometimes have difficulty communicating when feelings are involved either the child's or their own. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I think one of them is that sometimes when your child has big feelings, you will also be having big feelings as well. So that can either be about why isn't this working and am I an incompetent parent? Or it's to do with your own child and the way that you were parented and there's issues being raised for you. So there's a um, model of therapy which uses the word shark music for that and essentially what it's saying is that sometimes parents are feeling in danger and threatened uh, when their child behaves in a certain way or it flicks back to issues in the past that they would have. The other thing is that there's a perception that dealing with feelings takes too much time and then the children should just do what they're told and get on with things that if we have to sit down and have a talk about how you feel that things might take longer but actually what we know is that if you can talk about feelings and what is going on for the child that often things will improve rather than um, just trying to push them through an experience. Why is acceptance so important to begin with? Acceptance of our child says you are okay and I love you even if you make a mistake or your behaviour was not okay. 
So the fact sheet's really talking about that needs to be the way in which we are with our children. So I think that's a beautiful gift that I got from my parents actually is that no matter what I did or how I spoke to them, they always made me feel that I was loved even if they didn't accept my behaviour. If you make your love conditional on how a child behaves or performs at school, your child will have an underlying anxiety that they'll carry through with them in life actually which will make them feel that in all relationships that they have if they're not performing or they're not complying that the love might be removed or the positive feeling might be removed so you know there might be times where you say something to your child that is a put down or wasn't okay and it has made your child feel bad um, but you can actually fix that by going back later and saying, you know, I was overwhelmed by my feelings. Of course, I still love and accept you as you are. I just got a bit out of control um, and try and patch up that relationship. So sometimes when we have difficult times with our children, um, parents will avoid apologising or going back and talking about it because they just want to forget that it ever happened because it's difficult for them or their sharp music has come up like I was talking before. But if you can repair that, that will be so helpful for your child in their later life to know that even though in that moment things were not great for us, my mum or my dad still loves me and it is okay between us, they just didn't like what I did. Can you share some of the other key points for us with communicating, such as listening attentively and so on? Mm -hmm. So giving your child your full attention when they want to talk to you is really important. We can tend to be very busy and sometimes things that children talk about aren't particularly interesting to an adult's point of view. But when we do that, we keep the relationship open and we say you're important to me and you can come to me about things. Make your request simple, keep your language simple, similar to what I was saying before. If you need to say something to your child, make sure that they're actually listening to you and you've got their attention. So you might have to use their name, you might have to get down to their level. Um, when your child talks to you, try not to interrupt them, let them say what they need to say and then give a considered answer. And of course, trying to avoid saying don't this, don't that. Um, we're all trying to keep our children safe and we're trying to guide their behaviour, but as we've talked about with the human's tendency to focus on the negative, sometimes the way we talk to them is very negative as well. So it's more helpful to try and ask for what you want. So please go and put on your shoes rather than don't just sit there, put your shoes on, um, is a more helpful way and it, it helps with the relationship of your child and it helps guide those habits that you want without making it about I'm not good or I'm doing it wrong again. How do you break that habit of using the word don't? Because it can be quite habitual and you may not even notice you're doing it half mm. the time. I think it's a tough one and I do catch myself doing it sometimes as well but you need to bring that into your awareness so with the human mind once we are aware of it and once we've made a decision about it we need to then remind us you can even put something on your fridge that says do or something like that or no don'ts if you want to stop uh, getting into that habit but really it's about making an active choice catching yourself in the moment and when you see them take a breath and think okay I don't want them to do that but how would I rephrase that in the opposite what do I want to see and then go with that and the more that you do that and the more you practice that will start to become your more natural way at the moment you've just got to learn habit of saying don't 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 and the only way to break those habits is to bring it into the awareness and then practice um, the occasional don't is not going to harm your child in the long term, but we're just really talking about optimal parenting, I guess. 
Why is it so detrimental to use the word don't? I'm not sure that it's detrimental, um, but it's that it can make the child feel like they're in trouble, that they're bad and they're wrong. Um, and it's also not really explaining what we want. So, you know, what we want is for them to brush their teeth or what we want is for them to look when they cross the road. Um, so it's more um, informational for them if you say, look both ways when you cross the road rather than don't just run across the road. So we're trying to guide the behaviour and encourage the correct behaviour rather than reinforcing the behaviour we don't want to see by talking about that. Nadine, the final article I wanted to talk about today was the article you wrote titled I Love You, I Hate You, 10 Tips to Survive Parenting Teens. Now, my daughter is only eight, so I have a few years before I reach this stage. Although, as a high school teacher and as high school teachers, we work with teens on a daily basis and parents of high school students will find this article particularly valuable, I feel. Now, to write the article, you said you talked to the experts, the current and graduate parents of teens. What did you learn from this research? So I consulted with the experts uh, because I wanted to know about the practical how-to. So obviously I've studied psychology a lot and I've read a lot of books, but that doesn't always mean that what you read is going to play out in real life. It certainly hasn't always with the parenting of younger children that I've done from a practical experience. So I learnt a lot about how to engage your team, how to connect with them, how to get them involved in a relationship with you and what actually works, so it was very helpful. Through your professional experience, what are some of the common struggles and perhaps mistakes that parents and teachers sometimes make when working with teens? I think it's seeing some of the oppositional and difficult behaviour as not liking me anymore as a parent or not, you know, the teacher feeling that the student's being very disrespectful. Really, a lot of teens are trying to work out how to be an adult, how to not be seen as a baby or a child anymore. And they're trying to, in the case of a parent, trying to separate from them. So they'll sometimes do that with words. And because they're not mature and they don't have their full um, logic and reason or functioning, sometimes that will be done in a way that is either a bit too extreme or it's hurtful. The other thing is lecturing, so people talk on and on and on about the future and what they need to do and I see a lot of anxious children actually in their teen years who are thinking they need to have their life plan sorted and they need to know what to do. Um, and also a lot of what you said will just become blah 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 because they'll just tune you out if, if you talk for too long. So you do still need to keep things not as simple as for younger children, but still short and relatively coherent and, and giving them a space to have their ideas rather than just lecturing uh, about what you know to be the truth because you're the adult. And the other thing is trying to be your child's friend rather than providing boundaries and guidance. So yes, you might have less conflict with your teen if you don't put in place boundaries but you're actually not parenting them and bad things can happen when children don't have boundaries and fences. How important is setting boundaries? Why should we set them? Teens need boundaries because they're at this point in this life where they can make a lot of choices and they are starting to interact with people that you may not know very well. They need them to feel cared for and loved. So a lot of adults that I've worked with um, have had parents who've let them do what they want to go to whatever party, no curfews, no boundaries, 
and whilst they enjoyed that freedom at the time, the general feeling that they got was that their parents weren't interested or didn't care enough uh, for that. And, and unfortunately, some really awful things can happen when there's no fences. So you do need them in place. And young people are still working out their boundaries with alcohol and drug use and who, what sort of people are safe to be around and not. So having boundaries there and guidelines about the sorts of people that they can mix with is helpful. How do parents know where to set the boundary? Well, I think you need to use your own value compass for that. Uh, what I don't recommend is what is everybody else doing because your team will tell you that everybody else's parents are letting them do that. If you're not comfortable with your child going to certain parties or drinking or taking drugs, uh, I mean those are quite important ones I feel from a professional point of view. Just don't let your children drink or take drugs. They'll probably do it but not on your watch because it will affect their brain development. They can get into difficult situations and not just as the victim but sometimes they can be the perpetrator of things and then they're going to have to carry that through the rest of their life um, because they made a poor choice. So use your values. Um, of course teens need some freedom, they need to make their own decisions. So for example taking the train into the city to go shopping with their friends on a Saturday might cause you some anxiety but it's probably something that they're ready for but going to a party in which there's no parent supervision or there's going to be a lot of alcohol is probably not a good decision. I think really checking in with your raider about why am I uncomfortable with this request from I'm getting my teen. You'll sometimes know when they're lying to you about things as well um, and they can be devious and try and stay at other people's houses while they go off and do the things that they want to do and I think if you can somehow keep some connection with who they mix with and so that means keeping your home open to have teens come and visit and um, that your home is appealing to their friends to come over means you get to be kept in the loop about who they're mixing with. And some of the experts that I talked to said they were very glad that they said absolute no's to some um, acquaintances and friends because they were involved in heavy drug use and things like that. And um, had they allowed that, there was probably a strong chance that their child would you know, become addicted and that's what ended up happening to, to these others that they had um, been mixing with. So yeah, common sense, but also I think not writing off every request from your team, but really considering their safety as the foremost thing. So you've already touched on quite a few there, uh, Nadine, but what are some of the 10 tips to survive parenting teens? Well, I think the major tip is be connected, find ways to connect and have that relationship. So even when it's difficult, try to find ways to spend time together that's positive and relaxed and calm. Um, so one of the experts actually talked about doing the dishes every night with one of her sons because that way um, she could kind of in a low-key way just be around him and it was a non-threatening conversational tip. Again, keeping the boundaries in, but we've talked about that a lot. Keeping them busy, actually, I think that's a really important one. So teens can get to this point where all they want to do is play computer games and they don't do much um, outside of school. but. The more relationships they can have with healthy adults, the better, because when they don't like you and they feel the need to separate you, they might be able to um, talk to other adults, so their sporting coach or their art teacher or something like that. And also busy teens can get into less trouble socially, so uh, they find a way to um, feel successful in life 
in a range of modes as well, which is good for all of us. It sort of fits in with that creative and productive value of the positive psychology. Your final tip was to see the good in them wherever possible. How do you do this when the relationship is struggling? I would say try to look outside of the relationship that you have with them. So where are they shining outside of the relationship with you? Are they very good at something? Are they doing well at school? Are they polite to their friends and their families? Trying to notice those things, even really small things. So maybe overall it's not going well, but did this morning they say good morning to you? Are they generally when you're not in this sort of conflict with them, do they have some qualities and attributes that you really like and focusing on them? What can you do if your buttons are really being pushed to avoid meeting anger with anger, for example? I always highly recommend taking a deep breath or several. Um, and when you do that, it calms down your nervous system and it gives you a chance to think about how you're gonna react. So. Generally when it's your own child you know what they're like and the things that they're going to do and how they push your buttons so you might also need to work out a plan of attack for that and when you breathe deeply you then get the space to think right activate the plan but if you feel your anger rising and you don't try and catch that you'll tend to be reactive and, and probably meet fire with fire and do something that you're going to regret or say something you're going to regret. And that probably will happen. I think it happens to all parents that we say things that we wish we hadn't or we um, speak with too much anger. So again, then if that happens, it's about going back and repairing that. I'm really sorry I lost my temper. Um, I'm going to try not to do that again. The discussion or the way that we're talking about things really got me riled up, so I'm sorry for that. And in a way that helps um, young people learn that when you get things wrong, you can do something about it, because quite often young people think that once you've made a mistake, that's it and you can't fix it. So if you as a parent can model that you're not perfect emotionally either, and that this is the way we deal with it as an adult, it's giving them a, a skill that they can learn over time as well. Is it also important as a parent or teacher to understand why those particular buttons are being pushed for you? Certainly, and I think if your reactions are quite extreme and you're feeling very guilty or very sad about them or even anxious, or you feel like you can't control them, I would really recommend going and seeing a clinical psychologist who specialises in parenting or in teens because they can give you a lot of help to understand why you're being triggered. And sometimes if you don't know why you're being triggered and the same thing has happened, again, I would recommend getting some professional help. You won't need to go to therapy for the rest of your life. Sometimes just one or two sessions is enough to get that light bulb and those skills in place so that you can parent in the way that you want to. Is it important to understand that this is a stage of development for teenagers and to not take it too personally? I definitely think that's the case. So some of the things that you see are just part of how that young person is trying to find their way in the world. So they're not going to stay like this forever. And many people notice a very big change in their children around the age of 25. So you might not get it bang on 18 when you're wanting, but um, Hang as, in there. <laughs> <yeah>. as, as <laughs> um, young people grow, they start to get more responsibility and more sense of what the world is actually like. And they'll probably develop some more compassion for you and that you are actually just a person. Nadine, can we finish today by discussing parenting styles? As we all know, parenting styles and recommendations have changed over the years and indeed continue to change. There are magazines, websites, books and experts who all have advice to share. 
In your professional experience as a clinical psychologist, what is the most important thing to remember as we try to establish positive, strong relationships with children and teenagers? So my tip here would be that whatever you're reading or whatever you're following, that you look to someone who is talking about strong relationships and connection with your child. So if it's more about boundaries and uh, schedules and how-tos, rather than uh, this being a process of parenting, it takes time and that the most important thing is about being in a good relationship with your child, then, then I'd be concerned. So whatever parenting model that you follow, as long as it's got connection and strong relationship as its founding principle, then I think that would be okay. Because as you said, there are fashions in this stuff as well. And certainly the way that our parents were encouraged to parent is quite different today. But certainly what I see is that wherever there is love and attempts to connect and moments where there is repair when things go wrong, whatever time in history that happened, things go well. Well, Nadine, you run a busy practice here in Perth. So thank you for finding the time to join me today. Thanks, Tracy. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with clinical psychologist Nadine Vanderlinden from Ocean Reef in Perth. Nadine's ebook, Tales from the Parenting Trenches, A Clinical Psychologist Versus Motherhood, is available on amazon.com.au. And if you would like to read Nadine's blog or get in contact with her practice, visit lindenclinicalpsychology.com.au. Please note, material provided in this podcast is for information purposes only. It is not a substitute for proper diagnosis, treatment or the provision of advice by an appropriate health professional. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.